Life is life. Life is, is an interesting journey of ups and downs. But how that journey ends is up to you today. You see, when you fall down and you feel like giving up, when times get tough, it's not the end. The question is, are you going to finish strong? The definition of a disability is something that will hinder you from being able to do something. I think though the greatest disability is not having no arms and no legs. The greatest disability is your mind, the choices that you make. The question is, are you going to make the right choices? Are you going to make the choice to have your life in its right perspective? Are you going to make the choice to get up instead of give up? Are you going to make the choice to dream big? There is no greater disability that we have in our life than to make the decision to give up. Because once you give up, then there is no hope. But until you give up, there is that hope. My passion is to encourage people, to inspire people to be all that they can be. I found my purpose. I found my strength. And I want you to find yours. Don't be afraid of failing. Every time you fall down, every time you fail, you learn something new. You're ready for the next one. You've learned how not to do something. Well then learn from it and move on. Leave what's behind and press forward. You can only win if you don't give up. Go for it. Don't let anything hold you back. If nothing's holding me back, what's holding you back? No goal is too big. No dream is too far-fetched. It's as big as you can dream it. There are times in life where you don't see the purpose or the good in your situation. But just because you can't see it, it doesn't mean it's not coming. Who goes to the train station, looks down the railway and says, Ah, oh, the train's not here, I'm leaving. You will wait for the train. Why? Because the schedule says that the train is coming. So just because you can't see the hope in your situation, it doesn't mean that it's not there. You see, many people think that I have only one foot just because you can't see the other one. I've gone from a life without limbs into a life without limits. What about you? Yeah, you can applaud. That's good. <laughs> Uh, Nick V, I can't say his last name, so I'm just going to call him Nick V. Nick V is a believer in Jesus Christ who I believe lives out of Philippians 14 uh, perspective. You can YouTube him and you will see uh, a lot of his stories and how the impact that he's having across the world. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So my question today, Mission View, is do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ will give you strength to do all things? Will he give you the strength to live out your faith, to succeed in this life? Uh, I believe that you can. One thing that I love about Nick is that he uses his limitations or the apparent limitations, his disabilities, as a platform for the gospel. And rather than just giving up, he tells people all over the world that they are to live for Christ and that they are to see the potential that God has given to each and every person. Now, Nick is married. He has two beautiful children, and he goes all over the world proclaiming the gospel. 
I started the message today with his testimony and some of the motivational words that he gives because I believe Nick is an embodiment of of what Peter is going to tell us today in the passage. What he told believers 2,000 years ago, my friends, is still absolutely relevant to you and I today. And so as we look in the Word of God, Peter's going to say to the believers, yeah, life is tough. There's a lot of bad things in this world, but you're not to give up. You never give up. Now, this, when we look at the passage that we're going to look at, you're going to realize that if you keep it in its context, it's in the midst of persecution. Words like struggle, persecution, opposition, falling down, getting back up, all these things, poor, mistreated, these are words that describe what they were going through. Now, if every one of these words were true of you and I, we would be tempted just to pack it up, go live in isolation, live and wait until either we die or Jesus comes back and say, come Jesus right now. But this isn't what Peter is saying. We don't retreat at this point. What he says is that we are to continue on in the power of Christ and that we are to do and live for God. In our passage today, these are some of the things that he tells us we are to do for God. He says, first of all, we're to pray, showing a dependency on God. We are to demonstrate an enduring love in the way that we live and love with each other. We must be hospitable towards others. We should use the tools that God has given each and every one of us to do his will. We must rejoice in the suffering and realize that God will use discipline to purify us as individuals. Now, turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19 this morning. And in verse 7, he starts off with a very curious phrase. He says this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, this thought is somewhat of a transitional thought designed to to take the believers from what we talked about last week. It's a time to have Christ affect your mind. It's time for us to get rid of the past. It's time for us to live for the gospel. This is what Peter talked about last week. And now he's saying, not only is it time, but it is the end. The end is at hand. And now what I want you to keep in mind is what these believers were going through. Because they were going through 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 hardships, there was a temptation there for them to just give up. And so what Peter is saying is, no, the end is at hand, and I want you to keep going. In a sense, he says, I want you to keep the end game in mind. I want you to live in, in sports talk as if it's the fourth quarter. Don't be like the Browns, who have never come back in in the fourth quarter, at least this season, or last, or the year before. Anyways, we won't get on that. But I want you to live as a fourth quarter individual where you are pressing on to win for Christ. This is what I want you to do. Now, the phrase, the end, is referring to Jesus coming back. He's saying Jesus is going to be coming back. 
Now, what you need to know theologically is that everything that needed to happen for Jesus to come back has happened. He came. He lived a life. He died on a cross. He was buried. He resurrected. He then ascended. And then Pentecost came. And now Jesus can come back. And what Peter, in essence, is saying, he's saying, guys, listen, Jesus will return. So what we are to do is we are to live in such a way that we're keeping the end in mind. We are living the, for the end game. We are trying to live until Jesus comes back for his glory. And so when he does come back, we will bring honor and glory and praise to his name. That's why if you go drop down to verse 11 in the last part, he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So here what Peter does is he uses the return of Christ as motivation for these believers. Yeah, things were bad. They're bad in our world. Yeah, Jesus is going to return someday. How many of you have said, man, I hope Jesus returns really quick? They had the same perspective. And what he says is, don't retreat. What I want you to do is I want you to live with the end in mind. And I want you to live with passion. Let's pray that God would really move in our hearts, that we would have the same kind of passion that Peter, Peter is teaching. Lord, Help us as we go into your word to see what your word is saying to us. Help us to be a people that your spirit so works in that we would be passionate because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, help us not to look at this world and all the negative that happens, all the killing, all the, the terrible things that are taking place in this world. Help us not to look at that and be discouraged. Help us not to look at our own circumstances and how difficult this life is and to be, help us not to be discouraged, but help us to realize what you've equipped us for, that for such a time as this, you want us to rise up to be the hope of the world and help us to be able to do that. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we look at this passage, we're going to see six in-game action points that he wants us to do. And I want you to know, Peter is being very, very practical. And the very first action point he gives us is he wants us to be clear-minded in prayer. Clear-minded in prayer. He says this in verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, Peter uses an interesting build-up of words to get to the place of saying we should pray. It's not just, hey, guys, I want you to be praying because it's a, the end is near. He says, no, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be self-controlled. Now, the word self-controlled means to be calm and collected in your heart. And then he uses the word sober-minded. Sober-minded means to be of sound mind. So it is that prayer is closely connected to the settling of our hearts and our minds so that we can make vital decisions when the pressure is on. Now, we understand this better when we think of the opposite fleshly response that we often have. Tell me if this sounds familiar to any of you. Anybody here a worrier? Raise your hand. 
Thank you. Anybody ever get distraught? Raise your hand. Anybody get a little panicky at times? Raise your hand. This is why he is saying it, because he knows we have this tendency. Have you ever made an irrational decision? Do you realize that we have all kinds of emotional things that cause us to have almost knee-jerk reactions in life? Someone messes with our kids, man, we got knee-jerk reactions to that. Somebody messes with our church or someone says something in the church against me and we have knee-jerk reactions and we have all kinds of tough situations in our everyday life. And what he is saying is, I have an antidote to us having knee-jerk reactions, to us flying off in our mind and flying off in our heart. And the antidote is prayer. Peter simply isn't giving us a call to prayer, but he is giving us the antidote to making emotional and reactionary decisions in life. Because when we make those kind of decisions, we end up hurting people. And we hurt the testimony of Christ. So he's really practical here. He's saying, I know the heat's on, but if you're having trouble with a brother or sister in Christ, before you react, pray. If you're having trouble at work, before you fly off the handle, pray. If you're having trouble with your spouse because they're being a jerk, before you fly off the handle, pray. If you have a situation in high school or junior high and it's, it seems like it's a huge drama because everything's a drama in junior high or senior high, pray. Settle your mind. Settle your heart. Pray. You know, I want us to be practical this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or anything like that, but I am going to ask that we be honest with one another. Maybe you're at a place where there's an anxious thing that's happening or there's something that's just been weighing on your heart. What I want us to do is make sure we turn this into a house of prayer. I just want to pause for a second and I want us to pray for each other. Would you be so honest to say, yeah, that's, I'm not going to ask you to do anything freaky just other than say, yeah, I am there. I need somebody to pray. Raise your hand loud, loud and bold. I guess not loud, but bold, bold. Now look around you. What I want to do is just take a moment and I want you, somebody around, just to pray. Maybe you reach out and just keep them in mind. Maybe you would put your hand on their shoulder. You don't have to explain your situation. Let's just allow just a moment of silence and prayer right now for us to pray for those around you. Let's pray. Lord, you know the needs that are in this room. You know the anxious spirits. You know how we are. You created us. You know our framework. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be clear-minded in prayer. Help us to lift up our hearts before you before we react. And I pray, Father, that you would settle our minds and our hearts in the situations that we are found in right now. I pray that you would minister to us that's what's so beautiful, God, is that you created us. You know each and every one of us. You know what we're going through. 
So I lift the body of Christ up, the things that are heavy upon our hearts. You know it. So we pray that you administer to us in that place. And help us not to have a reaction, but help us to have an action that is what you would want us to do. Maybe it's to sit still. Maybe it's to be quiet. Maybe it's to speak. Maybe it's to go to a brother or sister. Lord, give us the wisdom. You tell us in your word that if we lack wisdom, that you'll give us that wisdom. So I pray that you would give it in an abundant way. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Peter moves on to the next action point in verse 8, and it's enduring love. Take a look at what he says. This is beautiful. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let that verse sink in. Above all, keep loving one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what Peter does is he uses words that are absolutely powerful and intended to be a safeguard to the body of Christ. And so he starts off by saying, above all. It means beyond anything. This is of the primary importance. And what is of the primary importance is the next phrase. He says, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, love needs to be the highest priority within the body of Christ. Do you realize how other-centered each of these points are? He is saying that we have to have a focus on other people and that we have to have unconditional love for those that are around us. I don't want just regular love. I want earnest love. I want you to really go out of your way and love the people that are around you. It is a priority. See, without love, our teaching is just useless words. Without love, our acts of service are just motions that we commit, that we do. Without love, our relationships are simply mechanical. And without love, we will absolutely nitpick each other to death. We will do that if we do not have love. Now, the word earnestly was actually a medical word. It meant to do, go to the point of a strained muscle. Now, in the application of this verse, or in the context of this verse, he is saying, I want you to exhaust yourself to the point that you are strained in that you love one another. That is a tenacity of love. Now, I want to be honest with you. I'm going to be transparent about something that's been bothering me for 30 years. Now, I've gotten it off my chest, so I haven't been holding this in for 30 years. But bear with me as I share this. As the years go by, I see a growing lack of commitment to the local church. I see a lack of commitment to the local church. See, I think the older generation realizes that church membership, it means accountability, it means family, it means that I am a part of something. But to a younger generation, it's growing more and more that it doesn't mean as much. 
I'm in May, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says that God, this is God's household, God's family. He's gonna, Peter's going to say that later on in this passage. So that's how God thinks of this thing called the local church is God's family. And what amazes me is how we can move in and out of a local ministry with such ease and it doesn't bother us. And sometimes it's principle-driven, but other times it's simply convenience-driven. Does my church meet at the best time for me? If not, out of here. Does someone look at me cross-eyed or say something wrong to me or do something I don't like? If so, see you later. Is the music what I want it to be? Is it on my playlist? Is the band, does it really look cool enough for me? Now, in this case, there's no problem there. They're definitely cool. But if not, bye. And you might say, think that I'm being a little dramatic here or far-fetched, but I want you to know from what I have seen, that is not far-fetched at all. And I think what we need to evaluate is what is this thing all about? This is the bride of Christ. We are a part of the local expression of the bride of Christ. And there is to be an earnestness of love. There should be a tenacity of love within the body of Christ. Oh yeah, if there is false doctrine, I want, I'll be right with you. We need to be out the door. If we have forgotten our mission and we're not preaching Christ and we're preaching just some health, wealth, prosperity gospel that everything is okay, then you should be out the door. But when we preach Christ, yes, we're going to have that right but we're going to have a lot of other things wrong and that we got to work through it because it's a family and we have to have a sense of tenacity and that's what he says right here then he goes a step further than that and he says not only should we have an earnestness of love but we need to go a step further we need to let love cover a multitude of sins now, I want you to think about that. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? The word cover means to cover over sin. In other words, we don't just forgive someone's sin against us, but we literally cover them up in the sight of others so it's not a poor reflection on the sinner. Someone offends me. I'm protecting the person that sins against me. By the way, this is exactly what Jesus did for you and I. And that's what we are to do for others. See, this is a cover-up that God permits. There's a lot of cover-ups he doesn't permit, but this is a cover-up he permits. This is a scandal of love that he wants us to ruthlessly defend one another, even the person that has sinned against me. Now, all this is great until we put it into my scenario, my practical situation. Then it becomes a difficult thing. Let's just say hypothetically. Hypothetically, one day you leave here and your pastor blows right past you. He blows right past you heading to the commons. And you think to yourself, you think he saw me and he didn't say hello to me. He just wants those donuts so he can get fat. So he can just have all the donuts for himself. Now, I know you would never think such a thing. But you're ticked because I didn't say hello to you. Okay, let's just say hypothetically speaking that happened. But then all of a sudden you think scandal of love. I got to let love cover it. And you think to yourself, you know... I know my pastor could be a jerk at times, but so can I. But maybe, just maybe, 
He has somebody else that he needs to minister to. And it's more important that he gets to that individual. So I'm going to let love cover it. Now, I know that's such a silly and such a, a simple illustration. It gets much more profound in our own life. And he says, let love cover a multitude of sins. Here's my question. Are you showing enduring love in the church family? What sins do you need to cover over? Now, Peter's not done being practical because he moves on in verse 9 and he says, okay, here's the next action point. I want you to be hospitable. He says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, in order to understand this next action point, we need to understand the context. Why? Because we look at this and say, oh, yeah, I need to have someone over to my house for dinner, and I need not complain about that, okay? So I just need to have people over. No, no, no. Watch this. As we understand the context, it explodes with meaning. When we understand that this is a context of persecution, these are individuals, these are believers that many of them have lost their homes. And so as they have lost their homes, they have lost their possessions, they go to the nearest relative. Well, the nearest relative lives a two or three day journey away and they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles to travel. They had these things right here and so they're hoofing it and they're going and they go through a nearby town and it's becoming night. It's an unsafe, it's unsafe to travel at night. So what do they do? They go to the house of God. They go to where believers are. And so on a very elementary level, Level, believers would say, I'm going to invite you in. Now, the word hospitality means to be friends to a stranger. Literally, it means to be a friend to a stranger. And so they would offer the hand to that individual. And so they would offer them the hand of a fellowship and get to know them, latch onto them as a stranger in the church. But often they would open up their home and say, hey, you can stay at my place. You can eat my food as you are journeying on. And so he says, this is what they were to do. Now, Peter says, throws in there, do it without grumbling. Why does he say that? Because that's our nature, isn't it? Friends, your home isn't your home. It's not your home. It's God's home. And if you can't have people into your home, it's an area of obedience because he's saying, this is what I want. It's not about you. It never was. It's about me. You are to do it without grumbling because there are people that are in need. So you say, Steve, okay, wait a second. I mean, before long, you're going to have every homeless person in my house. What does this mean for me in my house? Well, I think that's an important application for us to think through. I'm going to allow a seven-year-old in our children's department teach you what this is all about. Her name is Skye. I want you to meet Skye. Skye is a beautiful young lady. And last week, there was a family that was visiting with Mission View. And Mission View, uh, they dropped off their daughter to the children's ministry. And you could tell that she was shy and that she was apprehensive. This is a new church, a new environment. And even though the leader did a great job of welcoming the little girl, she was still apprehensive, reasonably so. 
But all of a sudden, Sky, without thinking, in the classroom, walks up to the little girl. She takes her hand. She says, hi, my name's Sky. I am going to be your friend today. Come with me. And they go off and they start playing. And they play and they are two peas in a pod the whole time. Now, what do we learn from Sky? Sky was a friend to a stranger without apprehension. She went up to an individual and said, this, I am making you my friend. Do you realize that that's what people are looking for first and foremost when they step into a church? Is it friendly? Is it a place where people latch on? Not in an obnoxious way, but will they invite? Will they come alongside? My friends, this is how we do it. What we do is we make sure that we're friend to strangers. We start by greeting those around us and we latch on. Take them to lunch. Be an encouragement. Get their name. Pray for them throughout the week. That's a great start. But there may be people that are new from out of state or from out of country that we would open up our home at Christmas time or Thanksgiving time. I don't think that Peter is saying that you have to open your house to every homeless person that's on the corner, but there are people that are in transition, especially in this context of believers, that we need to be open to. So the question is, are we being friendly towards those that are strangers? That's what he wants us to do. He moves on and says, we are also to use the God-given tools that we've, we've been given. Peter is just hitting, hitting, hitting with all kinds of applications. And this is what he says in verse 10. He says, each of us has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. Now, once again, we see how intentional Peter is in his word usage here. He's clearly stating that each of us have a spiritual gift. Do you realize if you are a believer that you have a spiritual gift? Now, here's what I want you to think of it as. I want you to think of it as a tool that God has given you in order for you to carry out his will, his desire in your life. And notice that it's for other people. It's not for you. God didn't give you gifts for your own edification. He gave it for the edifications of other people in the body of Christ. Now, if we are self-absorbed, if our eyes are on ourselves, then we're never going to be able to serve effectively because we're focused on us. But our gifts are meant to be used for other people. Now, what he says here is he says, I want you to steward God's grace. Two key words. The word steward was used of a servant in a home. He didn't have any possessions of his own, but it was used of that servant who was stewarding the master's finances and all of his assets and using it to carry out the master's will. So that's what God has done for us. He has given us, we don't own anything. He said, you are simply a steward of the resources. But the biggest resource that we are to steward is the grace of God. He says, I want you to steward the grace. Now, what is the grace he's talking about? 
The word grace is very closely connected to the word gift. In other words, the gift that we have comes out of this huge pool of grace that God has given as a result of the cross of Christ. Because of the cross, he showed grace. And from that grace comes our spiritual giftedness that he wants us to use. Now let's put it together. Follow me on this. If we use the gift given to us, then we are properly valuing God's grace and thus we are managing his resources. We're doing that when we use his gift. But when we don't use the precious gift that he gave us that came at great cost, namely his death on a cross, then we are treating his grace as trash. This is why Peter's very passionate here. And in verse 11, he says, no, no, no. When you speak, you're speaking the very oracles of God. When you serve, you're serving with all the strength that God provides. See, he breaks down the spiritual gifts into two categories. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. Both were important. You look throughout the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, there were speaking gifts, the ones that were more visual. There were serving gifts behind the scenes. Romans 12, you'll see gifts that were speaking gifts, serving gifts. Ephesians, he says there's apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, all speaking gifts. And then there was serving gifts. And these aren't in competition to one another, but what he is saying is I want you to, one, realize the gift that God has given you, know it came at a great cost of God, and I want you to be passionate about it. Passionately serve him. When you do set up and tear down, if you're doing it for me, or if you're doing it for somebody else, and, or if you're just complaining yourself, then, then you got the wrong perspective. But if you're doing it for God and you're saying, I want to serve with all the passion that God has given me, and I'm going to do that. If I'm going to serve, I'm going to serve the children because I want to keep God in mind. I want to do it with all the passion. If I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak with all the passion. Some people look at me and say, Steve, why, do you, why are you so passionate? I want you to know that there is something that bubbles up in me. I start with a blank piece of paper every single week. And when I sit down, I say, God, okay, please, I beg of you, I plead with you. I don't have anything to give people, but you have your perfect word, and I want to do it with all of my heart. And I realize I have 35 to 40 minutes to really do an effective job of trying to passionately give God's word. My friends, we're all to be passionate. We're to be passionate about what God has given us to do. So here's the question. Are we using the tools that God has given us? You're going to see a spiritual gifts uh, test that's online that you can look at during the week. I encourage you to write it down. It takes 10, 15 minutes to do that. Some of you would say, I don't know where my spiritual gift is. It'll at least give you an indication of what your leaning is and some of the things that you, you're, you, uh, that God, how God has crafted you. So I'd encourage you to go online, take it 10, 15 minutes. It's not the end all. The end all is when you apply it in your life. Well, we got two quick points to end with. He says in verse uh, 12 that we are to rejoice in suffering. Take a look at this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of God, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, since we've talked so much about suffering, I'm not going to go in great detail in this passage, but here's what I want you to see here. God will test us in this life. If you get anything out of this, he is saying it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult in raising a family. It's going to be difficult in planting a church. You're going to go through ups and downs. It's going to be difficult in fostering children or adopting children. It's going to be difficult if you choose to work with children's ministry, youth ministry. It's going to be difficult, but it will be worth it. And what we are to know is that we're going to go through difficult trials in this life. We're going to go through pains in this life, physical pains, emotional pains. And what he is saying is, I want you, your job is to rejoice in it. Your job is to trust me in it. You are to bless others. You are not to give up. And you are to live by the Spirit of God in your life. And I don't want you to suffer for doing what's right. I want you to do what's right or I don't want you to suffer for doing what's wrong. I want you to do what's right all the time. Now, I want you to know that this whole teaching of Peter flies in the face of anybody that would teach that God wants you to be financially prosperous all the time, or that God wants you to be healthy all the time. This flies in the face because that teaching doesn't exist in the Scripture. Yes, God blesses. He can choose to bless anytime he wants. But these were people, try to tell that to these people that lost their friends, that lost their loved ones, that were suffering from afflictions, that had lost an arm because of persecution. Try to tell it to them. This isn't the teaching of God. What he is saying is you trust me because it's difficult in this life and you hold on and you don't give up. And then the final thing he says is, I purify us. I will purify you through discipline. Take a look at verse 17. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. There's that phrase, family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those that do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, Peter takes hardships to another level, and he basically says, church, it starts with us. Judgment begins with us. Now, what you need to know about judgment here, it's not punitive. He's not saying that he's disciplining us, taking us out to the woodshed. He is saying that the judgment here is the difficulty in life. It's the difference between the woodshed and the gym. Now, some of you younger people that have no idea what the woodshed is, Google it. You'll find out. The woodshed was where discipline, grandpa took you back or dad said took the switch off and he gave you a spanking in the woodshed. But in the gym, what we do is we work out with weights. 
And those weights are horrible. They feel horrible. The tension is horrible. But that's the only way we get stronger. And this is what he's talking about as a body of Christ. Through the trials of life, we're getting stronger. Judgment is happening with the family of God. I'm making you stronger through the things that you're going through. But now contrast that with the lost. The lost, they will have punitive damage. They will be judged. Verse 17 or verse 18, he's quoting Proverbs 11:31. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? The word scarcely saved means with difficulty. Here's what Peter's saying. Church, we all know that God uses difficulties in our life to purify us. We are redeemed. We are saved. We will go to heaven. But there are those that are far away from God that they have nothing but difficulties to look forward to in this life and in the next life, and they will face judgments. So the encouragement of Peter to the lost is to repent and entrust their souls to the living God. If you don't know Christ, I plead with you that that's what you need to do. But the encouragement to the believer is to hold on. Hold on to our faithful creator while we travel through this wasteland of a life. And as we do so, we are to do good. So here's our question this morning. As we back away from this passage, how can we stand firm and stand out as we travel through this wasteland of this life? How can we be faithful to the end? Well, Peter says it starts with having our mindset on prayer, clear-minded prayer, that we show enduring love to one another, that we give the, gospel, the gift of hospitality to others, that we use our spiritual giftedness, that we hold on to God through the trials and realize that God is not done with us. He's purifying us. We're going to close with a song called Wasteland. It's a Need to Breathe song. Need to Breathe is a, is a group of Christians that have crossed over into a secular world to be an influence there. Now, I heard a documentary this week on, on how they made the album Rivers of Wasteland. And basically, it was an album born out of struggles in life, relationship struggles, struggles to find their purpose. And what I love about the album is that it really talks about the real struggle of life, but then they see the spark of hope that is found in God and God alone. Yeah, he says in this song, he says, yes, I wish it was just vertigo. I wish it was just off balance in life, but it feels like I'm falling. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like life is just losing control? But then he says, oh, but God is on my side. If God is on my side, then who can be against me? Yeah, it's, I'm in this wasteland where I'm living. There is a crack in the door that's filled with light. And it's all that I need to get by. And I want you to take this as a message of hope as they sing this song. You don't have to stand. Just sit and listen. If you want to sing with the words, you can. But listen to the message and be encouraged that God wants us to hold on. Lord, help us. Help us to be a people that hold on to you.